listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belaboured Podcast number 79. We're going to talk this week about the new wage board in New York. Uh, it's an initiative by Governor Cuomo, perhaps one of the few good things that he, he'll be doing this year. And it might pave the way to a $15 minimum wage in the fast food sector. So we'll hear more about that from National Employment Law Project. But first, over to Bangladesh. After two years uh, since the country's worst industrial disaster at the Rana Plaza factory compound, the survivors of the building collapse are unfortunately still waiting for justice. But there's a little glimmer of hope uh, in recent weeks with the announcement of 42 indictments of uh, factory owners and officials who are alleged to be involved with the uh, safety issues that resulted in the building collapse. Um, in case you have forgotten, this was one of the worst industrial disasters probably in modern manufacturing history. Uh, over 1,000 people perished in a massive um, building implosion, basically. And uh, since then, it's been a nonstop struggle to get Western brands to fess up to what they did and to pay compensation to the victims. So although there were 42 criminal prosecutions, the story is still not over for these workers. They're still waiting in many cases for even the most basic compensation. Some of them are lucky just to get maybe $1,000 for a lost loved one or a severed limb. Um, the promised reforms are still unrealized. Uh, there had been an enormous grassroots effort to implement a building safety plan. So far, that is underway with inspections, but very few factories have been fully repaired uh, in terms of just bringing everything up to code. And finally, um, the 42 indictments won't bring justice for uh, the many, many families who are not even involved with the disaster directly, but are stuck in the low-wage global manufacturing system uh, for which brands like Walmart um, and H&M are responsible, but they still manage to avoid taking responsibility for the ultra-low wages. So 42 indictments, not bad, but it's barely a drop in the bucket. Walmart, you say? No, oh, yeah. <laughs> there's, a, there's a bit of a theme going on. See if you can tell yeah. what it is. This, this so hello, Belabored. I am back from my travels and from my rabbit hole of book writing for now. Um, last weekend, I was in Bentonville to attend the Walmart shareholders meeting. Long-time listeners will remember all the way back to episode 10 when our former co-host Josh Idelson went to ye old Walmartapalooza and lived to tell the tale. Well, I, too, survived the sad feeling that comes with knowing that pop stars you loved as a child and who played songs you danced to at prom will do Walmart's bidding. Rod Stewart, Mariah Carey, Brian McKnight, and Ricky Martin all played. Ricky host Martin! Ricky why, Martin! Ricky, why? why? Um, Reese Witherspoon was the host, and Carol Burnett also made an appearance. Since the Walmart, um, excuse me, since the Walton family owns about 50% of company stock and high-paid executives, a good chunk more, not a lot of actual business gets done at the shareholder meeting, and instead it serves as a sort of festival to reinforce the Walmart culture. Thousands of Walmart workers are flown in from around the world, dressed in color-coded t-shirts and given assigned seats in the arena, the Bud Walton Arena at the University of Arkansas, and they cheer when they are told to. 
But the Our Walmart workers are shareholders as well through the company stock ownership plan. And while their shares may not be making them rich, they do allow them to introduce resolutions and read them to the entire assemblage. This time, one of those workers was former belabored guest Venancy Luna, who is on episode 76. And she spoke to the meeting about her firing when Walmart suddenly closed five stores. And Cindy Murray and Mary Watkins also spoke in favor of resolutions. A resolution introduced by our Walmart member Mary Pat Tift in favor of reducing greenhouse gases was read by the executive director of the Sierra Club, who also called for Walmart to pay its associates $15 an hour. Before the meeting, I sat down with associates and our Walmart members Ray Scott, Tiffany Faulkner, and former belabored guest Martha Sellers, who is here on episode 66, before the meeting, and they shared some thoughts about what it's like to be in Bentonville and that famed Walmart family. So what's it been like being here the last couple of days, being in Bentonville? Have any of you been here, been to the shareholder meeting before? Um, I came last year. Yeah, yes. First timer. First, 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 <laughs> right. So tell me what you think of it. Um, well, since since I got on the plane. Right, the yeah. plane, it starts on the plane. Yeah. <laughs> it starts at the airport. <laughs> yeah, since I got on the plane, because I'm uh, coming from Atlanta. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I'm Atlanta, Arkansas. Like, uh, yeah. Since I got on the plane, I have felt nothing but hatred towards our Walmart. Yeah. You know, listening to people saying, oh, you know, uh, Walmart is a great place, you know. And then somebody a pop up would say, what if our Walmart would be here? And, uh, and then, like, 20 other people would come right behind them, like, oh, you know, there's nobody worry about mm. you know and being actually in here in the, like here in the town I can feel the presence of this being yeah. Walmart's turf right you know mm-hmm. and right now I'm behind enemy lines <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know um, it's the we're, we're people just like they're people it's the reaction, the attitudes we get, and it's like, why is there such hatred towards us? Like, uh, a few of us did an interview earlier, and like the second it was done, they're like, get out, like. And we're all, I'm sorry, we're all one paycheck away from living in our cars, or mm-hmm. you don't right. have a car. But <laughs> yeah. exactly. We're all one paycheck away from from living in our cars, or having to move back home with somebody, or yeah. That's that's just the way it is. I think they like you that way so that you're fearful of losing your job because you don't want to live in your car. But you know, just and that's like, a control issue. Just like when we did our action in LA last week, I thought it was so powerful. But once I went home and I really thought about what we had did, and I thought it was so powerful because I was like, um, just in case you didn't know, we did a. Um, we did a tent city outside mm-hmm. of the uh, Chinatown Walmart yeah. and then did a 24-hour fast. And I was like, you know, we just put our, ourselves in the, in the place of the 2200 because this is what's going on with some of them. You know, they only had a two-month's notice. I mean, a five-hour notice that they were going to be let go. Yeah. You know, if you're already living paycheck to paycheck and having to decide what I'm, whether I'm going to do this or this, you know, yeah. they yeah. could be 
starving. They could be um, living in tents on the street. You know, it's 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 a reality yeah. of, of the way farm workers live. They call it the Walmart family. Yeah, the Walmart family. Yeah, but you know, you know, Walmart. I do get them credit on that. They do they do make a family. You know, we're not a part of their family, but they do make a family. That was Ray Scott, Tiffany Faulkner, and Martha Sellers. After the meeting concluded, Venancy Luna and several of her coworkers went down to the floor and found Walmart CEO Doug McMillan. Luna asked him whether she and the others from the five shuttered stores would be reinstated. I spoke with her afterward, and here's what she said. So tell me what it was like speaking up there. It was very nerve-wracking. I was really, really nervous. Um... Speaking in front of thousands of people is not my thing. I could do like a small group, but like that always gets to me. My nerves get to me first, Um, but it was exciting. Yeah. Exciting and, you know, I just have to watch what I say because sometimes I get so mad because, you know, they're just liars and, Mm -hmm. you know, if they really wanted to reinstate us, they could have done it with me because they know me. Yeah. And they haven't and they're not going to. Yeah. You know? Yeah, and see, he was saying that most people have gotten new jobs. They haven't given you a new job? They haven't given me a new job, and they're not going to. Yeah. You know, if they say they don't re- they don't um, retaliate against associate, well, I'm a proud R. Walmart member, mm-hmm. start with me. Yeah. And then you prove to me that you're not retaliating against me. Yeah. So, yeah. until they do that, you will continue to retaliate against associates. So when you talked to uh, CEO Doug McMillan just a few minutes ago, what did you ask him? I asked him about our store, and he was like, I feel sorry, you know, that there's a lot of issues. And I go, that wasn't even my question. I go, my question is, are you going to re- reinstate us in our own stores? I go, if you said if you're, they're going to open up, like, on, on Christmas, mm-hmm. then reinstate us. You know, and he's not going to. That was our Walmart member, Venancy Luna. I have a story on the meeting up at Truthout. There is a link at the Descent website, and there will be more on the subject in my book if I survive writing it. Can never get enough Walmart. <laughs> and now for still more big box retail adventures. Um, the think tank Demos uh, recently issued a report that provides a breakdown of all the ways that people of color are disadvantaged in retail labor. It basically shows that in every aspect of the labor force, whether it's uh, scheduling practices or the level of position that they work or their hourly pay, uh, blacks and Latinos lag far behind their white peers. Discrimination is not always explicit, though there certainly are many, many examples of outright, uh, you know, de jure discrimination and bigotry against uh, Walmart workers and other workers in retail. But uh, as the Demos report makes clear, sometimes it's the implicit biases and the more subtle ways that racism works on an institutional level that are even more damaging. Although black workers don't differ greatly from whites in terms of education level or age of the workforce in general, uh, Demos reports that, quote, black and Latino retail workers are more likely to be working poor, with 17% of black and 13% of Latino retail workers living below the poverty line compared to just 9% of the retail workforce overall. You might wonder why. Well, one major reason is that they tend to work lower-paying jobs, so they're underrepresented in supervisory positions like managers or first-line supervisors. But shockingly, even in comparable sales positions, Demos researchers found that even among full-time salespersons, that is, doing comparable work, 
black people and Latino people are earning about 75 cents on the dollar compared to their white counterparts. That adds up to about $7,500 lost per year to institutionalized racism. And finally, uh, blacks and Latinos are disadvantaged when it comes to getting stuck in part-time positions. Uh, And as we've uh, talked about on this podcast before, that often means erratic scheduling, recurring fewer than the number of hours you need to make ends meet, uh, suffering from constantly varying schedules, sometimes getting no hours at all, basically making your life, uh, you know, rife with chaos as you try to do things like, you know, plan for the future and secure childcare. And uh, Demos recommends that, uh, like almost everyone else, across the board wage hike to $15 an hour would be one big step in the right direction. And they also underscore that with benefits and appropriate measures for worker empowerment, retail jobs don't have to be crap jobs. Um, we often take for granted that uh, you know retail work is, is bad work, but there are ways to improve the industry if the corporations were only willing to be a little bit less tight-fisted about their profits. $15 an hour is kind of also a theme for today. Um, there is news from the the more official Fight for 15 this week. Um, last weekend was the convention for the um, SEIU-backed portion of the movement, which is now, of course, bigger than just fast food workers, where they meet to talk about where the movement is, where it's going, and what's next now that several cities have, in fact, moved to $15 an hour, or at least are phasing in a $15 an hour minimum wage. The big news, at least for the mainstream press, was that Hillary Clinton phoned into this meeting and told the workers that she, quote, wanted to be their champion while avoiding making an explicit commitment to raise a minimum wage to $15 an hour if she becomes president. No other presidential candidates were invited to speak at the meeting. A representative from the Fight for 15 explained that Clinton had asked to speak and so phoned in. Um, Kendall Fells from the Fight for 15 told me all the major Democratic candidates for president have spoken out in support of workers fighting for 15 and the right to a union. 15 is a winning political issue. Raising pay for hardworking Americans has always been a winning political issue. The Fight for 15 encourages political candidates from all parties to stand up for higher pay and the right to a union. One of those people who is standing up for, well, at least some higher pay is Mayor Slay of St. Louis. Yes, that is his real name. He has called for raising the minimum wage in that city to $15 an hour. The Show Me 15 movement was one of the earliest to go on strike after New York and Chicago and has been strong as well as closely involved with the fight for justice in Ferguson. Notably, this move by Mayor Slay comes after the Ferguson Commission, which was appointed by the governor to look into the causes of the protests in the area after Michael Brown was killed by police officer Darren Wilson last August. The Ferguson Commission took up economic justice as one of the subjects for one of its meetings. Experts addressed the commission about racial disparities in wealth and income in the area and the fact that St. Louis ranks 42nd out of 50 metropolitan areas for economic mobility, and members of Show Me 15 spoke about their struggles and their push for 15. There also may be a deadline for when that city can raise its own minimum wage. The Republican-dominated state legislature passed a preemption bill this session that would prevent cities from raising their own wage. Governor Jay Nixon, a Democrat, has yet to take action on this bill. We will see if he listens to the commission that he appointed and vetoes it. Mayor Slay. That's his name. The most metal mayor in America, that people. Is, that is definitely true. Um, 
Um, so amid the flurry of activity and legislative paralysis over these uh, $15 minimum wage proposals, uh, you might be refreshed to know that here in New York, there's a uh, rather obscure sort of a mechanism that allows the governor to unilaterally raise wages for one specific sector of the economy. And Buffalo, New York, this past week was the site of a class struggle across New York City. No, it was the site of the first hearing of the uh, wage board uh, process that Cuomo recently initiated for fast food workers specifically. So people testified in favor of raising the minimum wage. Uh, by and large, there was a dramatic call for $15 an hour. And here to talk to us about uh, this proposal and where it might go and how the wage board works is Irene Tung. She is a senior researcher at the National Employment Law Project, as well as my former colleague at Asia Pacific Forum. So here's Irene. So first of all, Irene, can you tell us what is a wage board and how does it work? When New York State enacted the minimum wage system, it gave the legislature gave the governor's labor commissioner the power to raise the minimum wage on his or her own. Uh, through a wage order, what's called a wage order, by convening a wage board. Um, and so the wage board has three members. Um, this current fast food wage board's members are, there's a business rep, um, Kevin Ryan. There is a rep from labor, um, that's Mike Fishman, who um, is from SEIU, the Service Employees International Union. Uh, and a third member who's the chair is uh, Mayor Byron Brown of Buffalo. And so the purpose when New York State um, gave the governor and the commissioner the power to do this through law was to allow the commissioner to take the minimum wage out of politics and ensure that pay increases can be based on workers' needs as opposed to through political horse trading. Interesting. When was that law passed? I'm not exactly sure of the exact date, but uh, it's been many, many decades can you talk about what the hearing was like in Buffalo? Um, who spoke? What was the dynamic like? And uh, you know, what was the uh, what was the reaction? And you know, was there a back and forth? The hearing in Buffalo was uh, it was packed. The hearing room was there were hundreds and hundreds of, of people there, mostly fast food workers. And um, you know, the energy in the room was 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 uh, enormous. I mean, it was. Just, uh, uh, you know, people telling extremely moving stories um, about their own experiences. Uh, you know, people talking about having their lights turned off, not being able to meet very, very basic needs, um, not being able to pay for books to attend school, etc. And, and, you know, between a lot of the speakers, there were chants and, um, it, you know, it was there was a lot of energy in the room. So the... Um, there was back and forth. I think the vast, vast majority of the people who testified testified in support of raising uh, wages to fifteen dollars an hour. Um, there were, I think, just a handful of uh, people from uh, from the industry side testifying against it. But um, I'd say that was maybe five people out of more than a hundred that testified. 
Wow. Um, and so is, uh, uh, just to clarify, I mean, uh, uh, Cuomo himself did not, uh, you know, say whether he would or would not support a $15 wage. Is that the number that people were kind of settled on? Uh, were there other numbers thrown around or did people just uh, focus on that level? The focus was on $15 an hour, um, you know, as it's been for the movement as a whole and as it has been in other cities like Los Angeles, which just passed uh, this afternoon. Um, and, um, yeah, I mean, that was, so the, uh, you know, the testimony is also focused on why 15, um, was an appropriate number for, uh, for the wage. And that in fact, it was just adequate and perhaps not even enough for workers in many parts of the state. Yeah. I was going to say, not in New York city, but, um, um, so, and your, uh, your testimony, uh, specifically actually talked a lot about the um, sort of the economic feasibility and you did some uh, you did some modeling of you know what such a large wage wage increase would mean for the local economy um, and you also referenced um, cities that have done it already such as San Francisco and Seattle do you have any sense of what New York can learn uh, from raising the minimum wage to $15 as those other cities have done are there any lessons learned from those examples I think the main lesson is that, uh, you know, every time when these proposals are on the table, the um, industry lobby sort of cries wolf and uh, predicts these catastrophic consequences to jobs. And time and time again, we've seen that this has not happened and employers are able to adjust uh, and, you know, workers and local economies benefit from, from these wage increases. Um, so that's what we've seen in, in Seattle. That's what we've seen in San Francisco. Um, in Seattle, I think the preliminary, um, it's, you know, it's just been a few months, but um, restaurant licenses have actually increased since, uh, since the Seattle minimum wage went, went up. Yeah. And I, I believe uh, in San Francisco, they also saw, you know, no negative impact and overall economic activity after the minimum wage uh, passed. So, um, exactly. So, yeah. Um, so the the sky did not fall, apparently. <laughs> um, um, and uh, were, were there any, I mean, I guess I'm wondering if there are any negatives from those examples that you could parse out, um, maybe things that New York should get right um, if it does come to New York State um, that, that maybe uh, S- Seattle and, and San Francisco missed? You know, it's slightly different in New York because this is an industry-specific, sector-specific um, wage board, which, uh, you know, I think that... It, it would be fantastic if New York State or, or New York City were able to to do this across industries. Um, so, but I think that certainly fast food is a huge step, uh, given that it does employ so many low wage workers uh, in across the state and across the country. Um, and if wages for fast food go up, um, other industries will feel more and more pressure to give raises to their workers because they'll have to compete for those workers. So, I mean, I think it you know would be an enormous step if if um, New York were to to raise the wage to fifteen dollars an hour for fast food workers. So you were just talking about the way that this wage board is only going to affect the fast food industry. I'm wondering if that also kind of runs the risk of impeding worker solidarity from other low wage fields. Um, we've just seen a lot of hue and cry about nail salon workers. Um, we're seeing, I think the city council is voting possibly today on a bill that would protect car wash workers. Um, 
I'm wondering, you know, yeah, if there's any sense that, you know, some some other low-wage workers who have also been in motion are not pleased to be left out of this. From what I've seen, I think, um, you know, there's a tremendous amount of excitement uh, about this fast food wage board, and it's really seen as a first step and a huge first step for raising wages for all the wage workers, um, you know, whether it's in New York or, or in New York. Um, I don't, at the hearing itself, there were people who testified from a variety of um, unions that represent workers in other industries um, talking about what a big step this would be, you know, because the, the wage crisis is really, you know, obviously not confined to fast food um, in New York. So, um, you know, and as I said, raising the wage floor for fast food will have an impact on other industries. Um, and, you know, if, if workers from other industries see that uh, they can make $15 in fast food, it will be harder for for their employers to, to pay them um, wages lower than $15 an hour. Um, so, you know, I think the fight for 15 itself um, has incorporated um, more and more industries recently. I think, you know, child care workers have recently joined, home care workers have recently joined, uh, adjunct professors have joined, and I think the movement is looking to, to weave together the um, struggles of all of these workers across industry. Um, and I, and I think getting Cuomo to convene this wage board um, is a victory for for that campaign as a whole. Certainly, yeah. I guess I'm just I have long experience of uh, of not trusting Andrew Cuomo, and so I'm I'm looking for the the why is this just in the fast food industry? Would it have been possible for them to for the wage board to be convened for just raising the minimum wage across the board? No, my understanding of the law is that it is industry specific. Okay. And we saw this demonstrated before with the uh, tipped workers, right? Exactly. I, I believe the law says that the governor and the labor commissioner, if they believe that, um, you know, there is a particular sector in which wages are too low and they can show that um, wages in comparable sectors are, uh, um, you know, are higher, et cetera, that that's, those are some of the criteria upon which the, you know, the wage board can make this decision to to unilaterally raise wages. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of the minimum wage debates uh, across the state have revolved around that classic uh, upstate-downstate tension. And for a while now, New York City has been sort of lobbying separately for the authority to, uh, first of all, legislative intervention that would give New York City the authority to um, set up its own minimum wage, um, you know, to $15 or even more than that. Do you think that this wage board move, if it does go through, uh, might impact uh, that debate? I mean, I think a lot of the players that are involved... um, you know, are also support that New York City having control over its own minimum wage. So I don't see this uh, wage board as, you know, taking the wind out of the sails. Um, in fact, perhaps quite the opposite, showing that, um, you know, that there is broad public support for this kind of measure um, in New York State. And also showing, you know, if the board does significantly raise wages, um, that there are no catastrophic consequences, I think, um, can only give strength to the the call for um, home rule in New City um, with regard to wages. Uh, so, so, so yeah. To answer your question, um, 
I think it's, um, these are both measures and, and steps along the same path towards, uh, figuring out how to, to address the wage crisis in, in New York City and, and in New York City, in New York State, and obviously more broadly. And of course, you know, de Blasio will continue to uh, be trying to one-up Cuomo, so he has all the more incentive now to uh, keep going with the New York City minimum wage. Right. And, you know, I think it's very interesting that Cuomo announced the fast food wage board on the exact same day that de Blasio was unveiling his budget. Right. So that's not it's mm. not a, a coincidence, I, I don't think. Um, hopefully all this one upmanship will benefit uh, workers in New York State. Yeah, it, it is interesting. Um, because as I as I mentioned, um, long, hard years of, of uh, practice have taught me that Andrew Cuomo is not necessarily on the, the side of the workers most of the time. Um, he's made promises in the past to raise the minimum wage um, and certainly not kept them. Um, what do you think, other than this one-upsmanship with de Blasio, which is certainly a thing, that made him push this now? I mean, I, I think we have to give credit to the incredible movement that the workers have been able to build, you know, across the country. I mean, I don't, few of us would have believed two years ago when, you know, a couple hundred fast food workers in New York City got together and, and, and launched this movement, uh, that it would have accomplished as much as it has. Um, and, you know, the fact that Los Angeles, San Francisco, Chicago, I mean, all these places have gone, um, you know, to 15 or to close to 15. It's, it's almost embarrassing that, um, that New York um, is so far behind. Um, so we have to credit the incredible movement that these, um, that these young people of color have, have built in, in the last few years, first of all. And second, I think, you know, Cuomo is looking to buy some political goodwill um, as he he can use it right now. So he is vulnerable right now. And um, I think he's looking for to score some points, um, you know, doing this and, and finally uh, calling for a repeal to vacancy fee control, you know, in terms of the rent laws. I mean, I think that's another example of, of him trying to court some goodwill where um, there has been none, you know, previously. And for our listeners who are not so involved in New York City politics, why does Cuomo uh, need goodwill right now, particularly? Uh, You know, I I think that there are, um, there have been intimations that he's involved in in corruption, et cetera. I mean, there's been a series of high-level investigations of, of high-level political officials at the state level in New York State. And, uh, you know, it's unclear what his involvement in any of that has been. But um, in the event that something does come out publicly, um, I think that he could certainly use some goodwill in that situation. But, um, you know, again, to attest to the strength of this movement, I mean, $15 an hour would have seemed uh, like a ridiculous proposal three years ago, but now it's uh, considered low-hanging political fruit. So exactly, pretty impressive. <laughs> so uh, going forward, uh, let's just say that this wage uh, is raised a significant amount and Cuomo throws his weight behind the, the $15 uh, base wage. What are some policy measures going forward to make sure that people actually get paid that wage? Um, I, I know that 
uh, both San Francisco and Seattle took special measures to implement safeguards and, and beef up enforcement, um, you know, in their in their jurisdictions. Because, frankly, I mean, it's not just a matter of the wage being set too low. It's just the fact that many people were never even making the lower minimum wage to begin with when they should have been, right? Right. Well, I'm less of an expert on the enforcement front, but um, you know, I do know that in San Francisco and other places, um, you know, having uh, strong community involvement in enforcement um, is is a key part of, of making sure that low-wage workers know what their rights are and know how to file complaints um, when they need to. Um, I think just beefing up resources for enforcement altogether um, is, is important, you know, having enough inspectors and, and so forth, um, and also creating real consequences for uh, employers that, that engage in wage theft or don't, don't pay um, the wages that are due to workers you know, whether that is through um, a wage lien um, or through other ways to ensure that that workers can actually collect the money that they are owed. Because often, you know, workers get a judgment and they and the employer is supposed to pay them, but they can't even actually collect on that. Um, so, you know, I think there's a, a large menu of policy options that are available to states in terms of beefing up enforcement. Yeah, and maybe that speaks to me, the the utility of having a sector-by-sector approach, because enforcement in the fast food sector is going to have sort of a different horizon than uh, enforcement, say, in construction or something like that, where, you know, employment tends to be uh, a little bit slip more slippery, maybe. Um, and, and just one more question. I mean, uh, you know, the other half of the uh, call for um, $15 an hour was, of course, um, uh, you know, the right to form a union. Um, and, of course, that's not really being discussed at this wage board. Uh, do you feel like this might help stoke uh, efforts to uh, organize workers more? Or maybe, um, you know, the, that, that having a measure like this pass, could it run the risk of removing some of the momentum of, of the organizing? Um, I absolutely think that this, that the, you know, $15 in the union is, is the rallying cry of this movement. And that's what I heard. Um, over and over again at the hearing itself from workers who are testifying. Um, and I think, you know, we can learn from past workers' movements like the the movement for an eight-hour eight day in which, you know, that was a campaign that uh, really built the foundation for organizing unions. The, but the, the organization came afterwards, right? It wasn't beforehand. It was the, the movement came first and um, involving large numbers of people you know, workers sort of cutting their teeth and building leadership from that call for an eight-hour work day. And then after that, we saw an explosion in uh, membership in unions and um, the growth of the union movement. So um, so in that sense, I think that the fight for 15, you know, is absolutely a sort of stepping stone towards more unionization in, the, um, in sectors like fast food. And I guess the the last thing was, um, do you, I know NELP has done a lot of work, um, kind of uh, investigating efforts to roll back the minimum wage. And I guess could you maybe uh, give us a little overview of what we might want to look out for in terms of, uh, you know, if this does pass, there will inevitably be um, insidious attempts uh, deep down in the uh, in Albany to to undermine this. Uh, what are some things that the business lobby has tried to uh, do to undercut um, minimum wage increases in re- in recent years or months? I am less familiar with those attempts specifically, but I think that, you know, where they can, the 
business lobby will attempt to sort of, like you said, undercut some of the gains in, in recent years. Um, I know that they have been attacking, for example, living wages that have been on the books in a number of places, uh, living wages that impact city contractors and the workers that work for them. Uh, so if we do see a significant raise as a result of the wage board process, um, it you know doesn't mean that the movement in New York City can demobilize, and I don't think that it is going to. Um, I'm sorry, in New York State, uh, you know, I think that the only thing that can prevent rollbacks is if the movement you know continues to sort of stay vigilant and um, and defend its victories. That was Irene Tung. She is a senior researcher at the National Employment Law Project, and last week she testified before the Wage Board. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it is everybody's favorite time of Belabored. Arg! I wish I'd written that. So, for me, well, there's been a lot of frankly bad writing lately about how college students are getting too politically correct for their own good and how identity politics are making it too hard for nice white men to teach college students. One of the worst examples of this newly popular again since I heard the 90s were back genre was published at Vox by a pseudonymous white man under the title I'm a liberal college professor, my liberal students terrify me. I was almost forced to actually weigh in on this debate, one I've been studiously avoiding because I thought we settled it back in 1994. But then Vox published a a rebuttal by its own Amanda Taub that said pretty much everything I would have said. Taub's piece, titled I Was a Liberal Adjunct Professor, My Liberal Students Didn't Scare Me at All, reminds everyone that the real problem in college is not students figuring out their politics in sometimes obnoxious ways, but the casualization of academic labor. In other words, it's not the students who are scary, it's the administrators. Laura Kipnis did, of course, point this out in her own writing on the subject, but most other examples are too busy wringing their hands about scary, feminist, anti-racist, queer, and transgender students to bother. Quote, I bring up my own experiences as a reminder that if the plural of anecdote isn't data, the singular of it sure as hell isn't either, writes Taub. She points out that the article instead is truthy rather than true, and goes on to present some actual data that should scare you much more than your students wanting you to not assume which gender pronoun to use. 76% of faculty across all U.S. institutions of higher education now are adjuncts, a fact that belabored listeners are probably aware of, but certain university pro- professors apparently are not. She writes, quote, If adjuncts and junior faculty members feel insecure enough to censor their teaching or work, then that's a problem in their relationship with their universities, not in their relationships with their students. Indeed, in that academic environment, it wouldn't matter if liberal, liberal identity politics disappeared tomorrow. Some students will always be unhappy about something, and if faculty are this nervous, that will influence their teaching. Indeed, the article notes that the only actual complaint this professor ever received was from a conservative student angry at his, quote, communistical tendencies because he refused to blame poor black homeowners for the 2008 financial crisis, end quote. She notes, too, that Wisconsin's Scott Walker, everybody's favorite villain, after decimating the ranks of unions in his state by attacking first public sector and then private sector unions, is now focusing in on dismantling tenure at the University of Wisconsin system. 
something that all of these people clutching their pearls about identity politics have spilled precious little ink about. Little ink has also been spilled about a professor at Oakton Community College who was accused of, quote, a true threat against the college president because he mentioned the Haymarket riot in a May Day email. Finally, the only thing I'd add to Taub's piece is that these stories generally assume that identity politics has more to do with hurt feelings than actually existing oppression that affects material conditions, like Michelle was talking about earlier with the discrimination in the retail workforce, perhaps. These students need to toughen up, goes the line. It's hilarious, then, that this argument is promulgated by a white man centering his feelings in order to convince us that his students are the problem. If you're afraid of your students, perhaps teaching isn't for you. If you're afraid of your administration, perhaps the solution is, as we say so often on Belabored, to organize. There's also another rebuttal, also at Vox, to this article by Karifa Mitchell, who writes, although less about the labor politics of the university, much more about the dynamics of power in the university and in the larger world, which we will put links to both of those up at the Descent website. See, something good can come out of the occasional like, Excellent rebuttals to this. Yes. Um, so my piece is actually a pick from the New York Times op-ed section, so uh, yes, more of an establishment paper, but there is an interesting glimmer of transgression in this op-ed by Lee Siegel called Why I Defaulted on My Student Loans. And he basically makes a case for, um, you know, just defaulting on his loans. Um, you know, uh, obviously he's uh, sort of, you know, in the financial clear. Um, he's writing from what you might say a rather fortunate position. No one's garnished his wages or thrown him in some sort of awful debtor's prison. Yes. So, yeah, yet, right? Now the cat's out of the bag. But, um, you know, he does talk about uh, some, you know, a rather, he makes an articulate case for um, simply just choosing not to pay. Or, as he puts it, I chose life. That is to say, I defaulted on my student loans. He basically argues, quote, I found myself confronted with a choice that too many people have had to and will have to face. I could give up what had become my vocation, in my case being a writer, and take a job that I didn't want to do in order to repay a huge debt that I had accumulated in college and graduate school, or I could take what I had been led to believe was both the morally and legally reprehensible step of defaulting on my student loans, which is the only way I could survive without wasting my life in a job that had nothing to do with my particular usefulness to society. So he's neither overly celebratory nor overly cautious, and I thought he you know, made a pretty good, uh, reasonable argument for why it sometimes makes sense to say F you to the system. And he notes, I am sharply aware of the strongest objection to my lapse into default. And he writes, the argument is, if everyone acted as I did, chaos would result. The entire structure of American higher education would change, they say. The collection agencies retained by the Department of Education would be exposed as the greedy vultures that they are. Yes, the government would get out of the loan-making and loan-enforcement business, and Congress might even explore a special universal education tax that would make higher education affordable. Horrible, I know. So basically, he's saying there's not that much to be afraid of. In fact, often the reason we pay back our debts dutifully and comply with the system is because uh, we fear, well, um, you know, ourselves, and we fear the uh, power of of uh, mass action. And so at the heart of his argument is the realization that what often keeps us locked into the system and following these oppressive rules is fear. It's not just fear of the unknown or of poverty, though those are very real things, but fear of ourselves, fear of 
what people do when they get power in their lives in fear of what happens when individuals take control of their situation for the collective good. We're socialized to fear the power of mass action as if it's inherently negative. And Siegel turns that ethical calculation around so that the moral authority lies with the rights and aspirations of the debtors, not the creditor. And by turning that upside down, people can actually start to change the structure of inequality that they always took for granted. And that's how a movement starts. And if I have a piece up at The Nation today talking about a student debt strike that's uh, um, unfolding across the nation, and you know maybe those are some small steps that we can keep in mind as we look towards a world beyond debt. Yeah, it's important to note that, in fact, not paying your student debt can have a lot of really horrible consequences, which is why doing it on your own is probably not a good idea. Doing it as a collective with a plan is probably going to be much more successful. Yes. Hence a strike rather than just defaulting. That is all we have for you today. This was Belabored Episode 679. We're almost at 80. Wow. Um, Before we go, though, we'd like to invite you to join us for a belabored special event on July 7th here in New York. We will be doing a joint belabored live event with David Stein and Betsy Beasley of the Who Makes Sense podcast. Who Makes Sense is an excellent show that focuses on the history of capitalism. We will be at 61 Local in Brooklyn, 7 p.m. upstairs. It is a bar, so you can have a beer while you listen to us jabber and ask some questions that we will play on the show. Details are at the Descent website, as well as a link to Who Makes Sense if you are not already a listener. You can, as always, tweet at us at hashtag belabored, send us an email at belabored at descentmagazine.org if you work at Walmart, if you work in fast food, if you are from a state other than New York that has something like this wage board, we would love to hear from you. And over and out. This life is hard, so hard I must go. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Until next week, join us online using hashtag belabored.